This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Ashley. And I'm Lacey, and this is United States of Murder. This week, we're in Ohio discussing the twisted murder of a coal miner. Then we'll talk about the Columbus poltergeist. So buckle up and join us on this dark and twisted ride through the Buckeye State. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde may be a work of fiction, but more people than you think have gone down a path of destruction as a result of a double life that spiraled out of control. At first, it can seem liberating. You're given an alternate existence to explore a new identity, indulge in fantasies, and feel a sense of freedom. But the juggling act, maintaining lies, and fear of exposure can trigger anxiety and even fear. The revelation of your double life could also cause damage to relationships, trust, and reputation. It typically affects more than just one person. The case I'm about to talk about is a tragic reminder of how devastating the consequences can be when leading a secret life. It also serves as a reminder that being your most authentic self is always the better path. Brad McGarry was born on October 24, 1973 and grew up in Louisville, Ohio. He later moved to Bel Air, Ohio. Fun fact, the Bel Air Bridge was filmed in the movie The Silence of the Lambs. Bel Air is a village along the Ohio River on the eastern border of the state, and the population was just 3,870 at the 2020 census. So it's a pretty small town, and it's pretty conservative. And that matters in this case because Brad is openly gay, and he openly embraces his identity. He did his own thing, despite plenty of rude comments and bullying from even adults. Adults? Yeah. But he had a group of friends who loved him dearly and a lot of supportive people in his life. And Brad pursued a career as a hairdresser. He loved doing hair, but he wasn't making enough money. He realized he needed another job on the side to give him the financial stability he wanted. So he began working as a coal miner. Yeah, hairdresser and coal miner. Very different professions. All I can think of is Zoolander. (laughs) (laughs) I got the black lung. I was kind of like, that's interesting, but I did a quick Google, and currently there are 90 active coal mining operations in 15 eastern Ohio counties that produce coal, worth about $626 annually. Holy shit. I... I mean, it's very, very close to West Virginia, but I just never think of Ohio. I don't know. So it wasn't his passion, but he did at least get to work with his best friend, David Kinney. On May 7, 2017, David Kinney, along with his wife Sherry, and their young daughter went to Brad's house to deliver a weed trimmer. When they arrived, they noticed his front door was slightly opened. So because of this, they walked right in. His home was in complete disarray and looked like it had been ransacked. Then they found the lifeless body of Brad in the basement. Sherry immediately called 911 and said, There's blood everywhere. Oh my God, I'm going to throw up. My friend is dead. Ugh. Yeah, and the little girl's with them too, which Mm -hmm. is awful. The police arrived to find Brad deceased from two gunshot wounds from the back of the head. Even though it looked like there had been a potential burglary, the investigators realized it was staged. Nothing had been stolen, no valuables had been taken, and there was no sign of a forced break-in. I always wonder, why don't people that do this at least try to steal some stuff? To make it look... I don't want them to get... Right. You know what I mean? But I'm like, they never take anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At least take the money out of their wallet. No, don't do that. (laughs) We like dumb criminals. But since Brad dealt with a lot of homophobia in his village, that broadened the list of suspects in the case. 
So he didn't have any quote unquote enemies, but there were several people that didn't approve of his lifestyle. So the police interviewed several people who were known to kind of not see eye to eye with Brad's openly gay lifestyle, but they all had alibis. Brad was also well-liked by his colleagues at the coal mine, and there was no evidence to suggest that anyone from the mines had any motive to kill him. So the guys there liked him. Hmm. No work problems, no nothing. And the investigators hit a dead end and didn't really know Where to what go. to do. They're like, okay, who killed this guy then? Brad did have an ex, so investigators would talk to him. David and Sherry told police Brad recently broke off a relationship with a man named Scotty, which was corroborated by another friend of Brad's. But when they reached out to Scotty, he was super upset and they thought he was genuinely sad to hear about the murder and he had a pretty good alibi. He was incarcerated in a West Virginia jail at the time and police verified this. So Brad was single at the time of his murder so it's not like the police had a boyfriend or lover to talk to. Until Brad's cousin met with police and told them that just hours before he was murdered, Brad had mentioned that a man named DJ was going to his house. Brad told his cousin that they were romantically involved, but he was married, and he had not come out to his wife yet. Yeah. What? That is messy. Yeah. So Brad had apparently been urging DJ to open up with his wife about being gay, and DJ was very resistant to this idea. DJ wasn't a name investigators were familiar with until they realized it was just a nickname. Brad's cousin shocked everyone when he revealed that DJ was no other than David Kinney. Brad's best friend. <gasps> what? Yeah. Sherry's husband? Sherry's husband. Oh, shit. Yeah. So investigators brought 31-year-old David in for questioning and obtained his consent to search his cell phone. Whatever David had to say next didn't matter because he was totally screwed. His phone's data confirmed he had a very romantic relationship with Brad and had been hiding it from his wife. David knew they would find this, mm -hmm. so he confessed that he was having a secret affair with Brad, but he said he had nothing to do with his death. He said on the day of Brad's murder, he went to a Chinese restaurant for lunch with Sherry, and after he went along to inspect trailers and got home around three. He was alone when he looked at the trailers. Well, his cell data shows a different story. No. It pings near Brad's house at the time of murder. <sighs> Once police told him, look, your alibi doesn't check out, he changed his story. He said, okay, I was with Brad, but there was a third man there who shot Brad. So he's <laughs> the other guy. He yeah. didn't see him shoot him. There was a third guy there. He had no idea who this man was. This man shot Brad. But he never told anyone until now. No. So they easily poked holes in it. Yeah, no. So David changed his story again and said he did shoot Brad, but it was in self-defense. In total, he told seven or eight different versions of what happened. Finally, the police told him, look, this is not self-defense. We know that because he was shot in the back of the head. There's no other marks on him. There was no scuffle. He turned around and you killed him. He might not have even seen it coming. So David broke down and finally told them the truth, at least what they think was the truth. David Kinney's murder trial commenced in late January of 2018 and spanned eight days. During the trial, the prosecution argued that Brad had grown increasingly frustrated with their secrecy. Like, he wanted them to be together and to be open and... Him to be honest with his wife, leave her, yada, yada, you know, the whole thing. That never happens. <sighs> I know, I know. That's like the mistress demanding to be the number one. You knew the part you played. Yeah, it's like if you enter a secret relationship. You can't be pissed that it's a secret after yeah, a while. Yeah, it's like, and David didn't want to leave his wife. He 
was gay, but mm-hmm. he loved her. I mean, it happens. Right. No, yeah. He loved her still, and he they had a child together. He wanted to maintain his secret family. He wanted it to just literally be a double life. Ugh, you can't have your cake. I know. So he was like, look, I'm not leaving her. We're st- this is how it's going to be. So allegedly, Brad was threatening to reveal their relationship to his wife, Sherry. I don't know if that's actually true or not. That would not be the best thing to do. Obviously, don't out someone, but that's what David claimed. But of course, he would claim that if he killed him, you know? So he, David didn't want Sherry to know because he didn't want his relationship to end, which would give him a motive to kill Brad. Well, and also the, just the stigma of him yeah. being a homosexual. And he got a chance to speak with his wife before they, you know, took him back to jail. During which he expressed profound apologies to her. He continued to assert that he acted in self-defense when he killed Brad. And Sherry's reaction to this was so genuine and convincing. The police were like, she was not involved in this. She had no idea. And she was pissed that he had involved their child. Mm -hmm. He knows Brad's Mm -hmm. dead on the ground. Why let your wife and kid walk in on that? (sighs) Your kid doesn't so have it's to believable. see that. Exactly. So it's believable. But she was very upset by that. Of course she would be. And like she was saying, I can't even look at you right now. And he was like begging her for forgiveness. Yeah. Ugh. I can't even imagine how she must have felt. Because he was called Uncle Brad and everything. He went on family trips with them. And the whole time it was his, her husband's An lover. Affair. I Oh, I would have just, I don't even know. How angry I would have been. In February of 2018, the jury delivered its verdict, finding David guilty of aggravated murder with a firearm specification. As a result of this, he received a life sentence without the possibility of parole and an additional three-year sentence. I was kind of surprised on, I'm not saying they shouldn't have, but sometimes it's like, 20 years. No, right. You can get parole in 15. Yeah, 15, which means 10. Yeah, he's in life, life forever. And although he appealed his sentencing, the 7th Appellate District Court upheld the verdict in July of 2019 and reaffirmed it in 2021. He's currently at the Correctional Reception Center in Ohio and, yeah, has no possibility of parole. And this case was on Dateline on Season 27, Episode 48, titled Dangerous Secret. I didn't watch it, but I need Ooh, to. Now I want to watch it. Yeah. I mean, no one goes into an affair with murder on their mind. Right. But they do tend to turn super messy after a while. <sighs> Somebody always catches feelings. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Always. One person wants it out and one uh-huh. doesn't. That's Mm-hmm. That's a fair 101. Even other people that are married to other, oh, right. both, both parties both are parties married. Both parties can be married, but one person's like, let's leave our spouses yes. and get married. And for the other one's and like, no. Uh, it, it's moral of the story don't cheat. Don't have an affair. Don't cheat. Find someone else. I mean, I know it's limited. <laughs> I, can, I know by your stories, it's <laughs> limited out there, but it is. It could, don't let it lead to murder. No, I'm just saying. No. Mm-mm. But I'm excited to hear your story because it sounds like it's completely different. So, well, this is a very crazy story. Okay. So, uh, just kick back and relax because it's kind of long. Okay. And it spans over a couple states. So, okay. Well, let's grab a drink real fast and take a break. Christina Resch, which I'm probably not pronouncing that right. Everybody called her Tina, though, so you'll hear me call her Tina. She had a rough start at life. She was given to child services as a baby by her parents Hmm. who just couldn't care for her. She was put into foster care with John and Joan Resch, and they continued to be her foster parents for a long time. They had lots of kids in and out over the years, and they eventually adopted Tina. Hmm. Their house was always busy, lots of kids in and out, so they were strict. Some would say it was chaos, but 
with having up to, you know, six, eight foster kids at once, that's a lot, that's a lot of kids. Years later, Tina confided in a friend that her foster brother had molested her. She hadn't told her parents because she was scared. Uh, she mm. would eventually go on and tell them, and they didn't believe her. Oh, come on. In fact, they slapped her across <gasps> the face, and this brother would uh, eventually go to prison for sexual assault. So she wasn't lying. How about you believe first thing <sighs> and look into right. it? Right. So her foster mother would go on to say that Tina never fit in at home or at school. She felt like she had to compete with the other children in her home for attention. It's just, it's sad. Yeah. When her best friend was killed in a car accident, the self-isolation of Tina just got worse. She felt completely alone and decided that she would find her birth parents. But her adopted parents were against this and withheld Tina's birth certificate and refused to help her. Good Lord. Yeah. So the first paranormal activity that the family experienced was on March the 1st, 1980. Just after an argument with her foster mother, her adopted mother, Joan told her husband to go physically punish Tina, which I'm assuming is spank. Mm -hmm. But Tina fought back using a knife. Later on, Tina got into bed and the numbers on her clock radio kept racing. Then the radio came on blaring. She would turn it off. It would come right back on. And eventually she just unplugged it. The next day, the heart monitor that was on one of the foster babies in the house kept going off for no reason. They called the company and the worker brings out a replacement, but it kept going off too. So there were some electromagnetical mm -hmm. things that kept messing up in the house. The next day, it was the TV and lamps in the living room. The washer would turn on and the dryer door kept opening and slamming shut. Every faucet in the house came on and the garbage disposal. So Joan grabs all the kids to come into the living room and they all see the clock spinning around. An electrician was brought in to check the connections, and there's nothing wrong. Hmm. He witnesses the light switches flipping off and on on their own because Joan and the kids are in the living room. Right. So he's seeing this. He put tape over them, and when he would get back into the room, the tape would have completely disappeared. Like oh. it wasn't on the floor. It wasn't ripped. It was just gone. Things would come on and run, even when unplugged. And so this family calls the police. They don't, I mean, who, I don't want to say who you're going to call. <laughs> who are you going to call? Who who gonna call? So, right. So they call the police. Right. And police get to the house. Officer pulls out his gun as he's walking through the house. I mean, it's, someone could be messing with yeah, him. Yeah, you don't know. A frogger, you know. Exactly. And a pan comes flying at him and almost <laughs> oh hits him. God. So the family, of course, they blame Tina. Even <sighs> though she was with the family when all this was going on and clearly not doing this. <sighs> Poor Tina. And it would happen when she wasn't even at home. So a priest is brought in to bless the home and a Mormon exorcism is performed on Tina. I didn't know there was such a thing. I did not know Mormon exorcisms <gasps> existed. I didn't know they did that. I guess... Anyone can command a huh. demon to leave the body or a room. Yeah. As long as you do it in the name of Jesus Christ, I guess anybody could do that. Huh. Neither of these things helped, though. Okay. Well. It had gotten so bad in the house that the youngest children were sent to other foster homes. Things were flying constantly, and Tina was almost hit with a knife. She would get excruciating headaches and stomach aches after this activity would take place. So Mike Harden, who had seen this activity himself, calls a photographer to try to capture some of this activity on film. But when he would show up, it would stop. Ooh. Until one day, he was able to capture a phone flying in front of Tina. And you can Google this photograph. There was a social worker present at the time, and she saw this and was in the photo. 
but she couldn't talk about it due to her, you know, confidentiality associated with her job. So this gets out and the media goes crazy. Oh, I see the picture. It's featured on Unsolved Mysteries. And you have to remember, this is the 80s and Carrie had came out the end of the 70s. Poltergeist, Ghostbusters, Mm -hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street, all the horror shit was at an all-time high. And Tina was nicknamed the Poltergeist Girl. Ugh. So over 40 media outlets came to the house waiting to capture a glimpse of this poltergeist activity. They were only supposed to be there about an hour, but after eight hours of them being there, nothing had happened. Tina's adopted mother pulled her aside and basically said, like, we need something to happen or they're not going to leave. So, yeah. So Tina decided to knock a lamp off. Oh, no. And it was recorded. And the whole thing was a hoax, according to the media, that nothing had ever happened. And it was all, but she was a young girl. She was tired. She'd literally been sitting there for nine hours. Good Lord. Right. Leave and come back or something. And you got to think of what all she has been through already. And she's a preteen or a young teen. And she's going to do whatever to feel loved and accepted and needed and wanted. So Mike Harden contacts a parapsychology lab who put him in contact with William Roll, who had studied poltergeist activities many times. So Tina was taken to North Carolina to be tested. What? She may be producing these disturbances unconsciously through RSP, which is recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. Unexplained sounds and moving objects were recorded. She was placed under hypnosis and objects would move up to 40 feet and around corners. They showed the cameras being turned on did tend to cause the activity to stop. Neurotesting suggested Tourette's and that it could have manifested as RSP in Tina. So she stayed in North Carolina and did anything that they wanted. Any test, she felt like she was family. Mm -hmm. Like that was the only family that. How awful. So skeptics did continue to bring up the lamp situation over and over again. And eventually Tina did go back to Ohio. But when she returned home, the Raish family did not want her there and didn't want anything to do with her. They wanted to put her back up for adoption. Oh, I forgot. They had legally adopted Mm -hmm. her. So they want to put her back up for adoption. She's 16. When did they first adopt her? She was a baby. Oh, my gosh. So they wanted to put her up for adoption at 16, which meant that she would go live in basically like a jail until she turned 18. Oh, my gosh. Like a... Like a children's home. Well, yeah, yeah. Which, oh God, that just breaks my heart. Not just for her, but every child that's ever had to live in a children's home. I cannot even. It's just. And it's very unlikely to. It's much harder to get adopted when you're a teenager. And also. And imagine all this poltergeist activity that's going on around you. She's trouble. How awful. So Tina decides to run away from home instead of that Mm. happening. She bounced from bad relationship to bad relationship. Her life was just very troubled. She did keep in touch with the researchers from North Carolina. Tina married, but divorced due to extreme physical and sexual abuse. Oh, my gosh. She sank into a very deep depression, developed an eating disorder, and contemplated suicide. She had no one. Yeah. She had no one to turn to, no one to help. She was getting no help for her mental health either. And it was during all of this that she found out she was pregnant. Ugh. She would later say that this is what saved her life. She gave birth to a baby girl she named Amber, and Amber was her only family. Yeah, I guess that's true. Soon the activity started back up, 
glasses would break. And she wasn't living in the same place. No. Oh. She was in Ohio, but not with the family. Right, yeah. So glasses would break. A fire started in their home once. Oh, gosh. Tina was still being abused. And in 1991, she decided to grab what she could of hers and Amber's and hop on a bus to Georgia, where one of the researchers she had known was at. Like I said, she had no help. No one to help her take care of this Mm -hmm. little girl. I mean, she was struggling. So she wanted to get as far away from Ohio as she could. And at 2 a.m., they headed off to Carrollton, Georgia, which was a very small town. She was greeted at the bus station by Jeannie, one of the researchers. And she told her, you know, it's back. Like activities happening again. She felt that she could trust these people. I mean, they loved her. She thought they did. They took care of her before. But one of the men who had studied Tina and her alleged poltergeist activity had wrote a book about her and sold signed copies, and Tina never saw a penny. Oh, gosh. So Jeannie and Tina decide to work on a book of their own, and they went to paranormal conferences and... She seemed to be getting her life right. back on track. It's like if other me- people are making money off of you. It's my story. Yeah. You, let's, yeah. You, yeah. Let's just do it on our own. So Tina meets David. He comes from a really good family. He had children of his own. He had a great demeanor. He worked out. He was smart. And he was very quiet and reserved. And things were going much better for her than they had in a very long time. David would babysit Amber when Tina was out to work. Mm -hmm. And by work, she was working on that book for Jeannie. So she would go over to Jeannie's and work, like, type. And, you know, they would just do research and things for the book. So one day she gets home and Amber had a mark on her head. And she asked what happened. He said she fell on the sidewalk while she was running. She asked Amber and Amber said the same thing, that she had fallen on the sidewalk. The next day, Amber had another mark. This time, he said she had fell down the back steps. Oh, no. And landed face first in the gravel. Tina called her adopted mom and asked her if she should be worried about what was going on. And she tells Tina, you just want attention. Oh, my Lord. Leave us alone. Yeah. What a heartless person. So on April 4th, 1992... Tina and Amber sleep in. She asks David if she can wa- if he can watch Amber while she goes and works on the book. So she leaves around noon. She leaves about four hours later and heads home. So this is about, about five. She starts, you know, heading home. After she leaves, David calls Jeannie's house asking if Tina was there. He says he can't wake Amber up. Should oh, I call an ambulance? No. She says, no, Tina will be there in a second. You know, she'll figure it out. So Tina pulls up. David's on the front porch. He tells her he can't wake Amber up. She runs in the house, grabs the little girl out of bed, runs to the car. They rush to the hospital. She's screaming at them when they get to the hospital. She is not breathing. She's Good panicked. Lord. They take her back. A nurse comes out and asks Tina and David, what what happened? Yeah. Tina's like, I don't know. I wasn't there. David is just sitting with his hands in his face and keeps saying, I'm so sorry. Uh. So the doctor comes out and he tells them that Amber has died. No. She's three years old. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my gosh. I was not expecting that from this case. Medical examiners determine the cause of death to be head trauma. <gasps> She had a subdural hemorrhage, which is an internal bleeding around the brain. And this injury had to have happened within the last four hours. Oh, my gosh. Detectives come into the room. The hospital had called them and told them they had a child abuse case, then called them back and said, this has just become a homicide case because the little girl has died. They arrest David. They ask Tina if she'll come down to the station, make a statement. She does. Police are questioning David since he was the one with her when she stopped breathing. He was the only one that was alone with her. And her other head injuries. Right. 
police asked Tina if they had if she'd ever seen David abuse her. She says no. Has he ever abused you either? She says no. They asked David if he did this, and he says no. They were like, well, one of you did this. He says, well, I guess it was Tina. Huh? So Tina's hysterical, right? She's being held in another room. She asks if she can leave. She wants to get to Amber. It's been over 10 hours. She's been at the police station. She asks, do I need an attorney? Why are you holding me? Am I under arrest? They said yes. And they charged her with murder. Why would he have said that? She wasn't even there. They charged her and David with murder. Ugh. Neither party is admitting to doing it or seeing the other person do it. So it was all, I don't know how this happened. I don't know, Am- you know, <sighs> how Amber, Tina wasn't there. I don't yeah. know. She was with David. So it was very clear that she did have old bruises and oh. that this had been going on. Mom would have seen them and that she should have stepped in, according to police. And me too. If you see these, you would have. But he's telling her she fell down. Yeah. She's a- Children are clumsy. Yeah. Tina was charged with one count of malice murder, felony murder, cruelty to children, and aggravated battery. There was evidence of all of these, and it was so heinous that they sought the death penalty. What? Which in Georgia was the electric chair. Holy crap. The day of Amber's funeral, her mother was not allowed to attend. The police said she was too upset and she would cause a scene. Well, the community took up donations for the little girl's funeral. And of course, just like everyone else does when something horrible happens to a child, you form an opinion. Right. And this community turned on Tina oh like a gosh. rabid dog. They didn't know her. She wasn't from there. It was a small town. And everybody knew David. They knew his family. They went to school with him. Their daddies played football but together. he was always the one alone with her when she had a head injury. It didn't matter. That is... Yes. Mm. Had she done it? Didn't matter. They yeah. had formed their opinion. She had, I mean, this is the Bible Belt. She had no family, plus a child out of wedlock and supernatural powers, allegedly. It was, it's giving modern day witch hunt. Yeah. So the prosecutors were smart assy. Like, if she's innocent and she has these abilities, then she should be able to get herself out of jail. She should be able to open these doors and walk out. If she's really has poltergeist and she can move things with her mind. Yeah. Newspapers would read poltergeist mom charged with murdering her child. Other inmates would ask her if she could read their minds. Oh, my Lord. Did she see ghosts and shit like that? They took her to a mental institution and gave her antipsychotics. So she was super drugged up and sleeping all the time. So Jimmy Berry is her attorney that is assigned to her. And he was a, you know, public defender, but Mm. also had a lot of experience with the death penalty. None of his clients had ever received the death penalty. He had got them all off or whatever. He looked at her case and told her she needed to sign a plea deal. Oh, no. That way, the death penalty would be taken off the table. She would get life instead. And she's terrified. She does not want the electric chair. He suggests an Alfred plea, which is basically saying, I maintain my innocence, but I know the evidence against me doesn't look good and I'll be found guilty. So she signed it. Yeah. She didn't want to die. I mean, that would be hard to. And he's telling that. Right. And he's telling her, look, you you may get five years and then you'll be out on parole. She's sentenced to life plus 20 years. Her attorney stands by that it was her decision. She's being threatened with a death penalty, though. And the electric chair, which is... Yes, which is scary. scary. And you're offering her this plea deal on a silver platter. I mean, come on. Like, do you want your brain fried? Right. Or do you want to spend life in prison? 
So one of the detectives in her trial testified that Tina didn't have a job. She was on food stamps and was supplementing her income making adult films. Her own attorney seemed to assassinate her character at every chance, claiming she was a bad mom. She was immature. But here's the thing. You can be immature and not be abusive and certainly not murder your three-year-old child, who was the only person you had and the only thing in the world that meant anything to you. Anyone who knew Tina never... No one could ever say they ever saw her be abusive. Ever. I just can't believe he got off scot-free. I'm getting to that. Oh, okay. She did not get a trial, though. Tina never got a trial. She didn't get character witnesses to come and testify for her. She That's didn't. Not, ha- because she crazy. took a plea deal. Yeah. So it didn't matter. She didn't have to go to trial. It never went to trial. I guess mm-hmm. that's true. But So Jeannie did try to talk to the attorney so she could kind of go to bat for Tina mm-hmm. and be her witness. But she was told that there's no one there. There's no one here for you to talk to. Ugh. So next up is David. His attorney now knows that Tina has entered a guilty plea, so he decides to take it to trial. So the jury knows someone else has already pled guilty and is already in jail doing time for three-year-old Amber's murder. His attorney asked every witness, whose child is this? It's Tina. She was the mother. It was her responsibility to take care of Tina, not David's. It was her responsibility to make sure that she got medical care, not David's. So it all falls on the mother. It's the mother's fault. She wasn't taking care of her. And this is what happened. (sighs) Amber was left in custody of David for the last six hours of her life. The injury that caused her death happened while she was in his care, and Tina was nowhere near. And he said, she's not breathing. Should I call an ambulance? Why didn't he drive yes. her to the right to the hospital? Right. Why call people and ask he's for their the, opinions? And he's the only witness. He and, was the only one that was there. And they couldn't see her to know how bad it was. Like, right. she's not waking up. What do you mean she's not waking up? Right. Like, like she's just she really taking sleeping? a long nap. What's she doing? Right. Oh, my God. So, all of this is according to the medical examiner Ugh. that... This had to, if for a head injury to be that bad, it you would have known something mm-hmm. within 30 minutes that something was off. Yeah. So it, David testified that he had seen Tina abuse Amber. Oh my gosh. Which was shocking to people who knew her because they were like, we've never seen her do that. Tina was asked to testify in David's trial and he did. Or, I'm sorry, she did. And she said that she had never seen David hit her. She wasn't going to lie. Yeah. Well, and he wasn't even saying that in the beginning either. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. (sighs) No. Man. No. This case is so frustrating because there's no DNA and there's no forensics. It's just like he said, she said. It really is. So he was acquitted on all charges except for cruelty to a child. He was sentenced to 20 years and was released in 2011. Wow. All of her parole hearings have been denied. There have been nine of them. And you can read more about her case uh, by going to christinaboyer.org, B-O-Y-E-R. And there is a Hulu show called Angels and Demons that I watched a few months ago. I'll have to check that out. And it's a three-part series and it's her story and... There is a group of attorneys from Georgetown who are working to free her. Wow. So, but there is, I mean, when you watch it, you you get very frustrated at this whole good old boy bullshit that these Southern lawyers seem to have a vendetta against her. That's just my opinion. Don't come for me. I'm going to come right back. (laughs) She'll come for you too. Yes. There's just so much to unpack here. Gosh, I will. This is a case I actually want to look more into because it's just. It's bananas. How could an, the death penalty even be on the table if the only evidence you just have he said, she said? You know, that's I mean, terrifying. Like I said, I'm aware that these podcasts that you listen to and documentaries are biased yeah. one way or well, the sure. other. Yeah. Even if you try not to be, you're human and your gut makes you pick a side. Yeah. I have. 
a lot of experience with attorneys and judges. Max's dad was an attorney for a million years before becoming a district judge. Mm -hmm. One of my very best friends is a prosecutor who's married to an attorney. I mean, it sprinkle in all the ones I've met in the past 15 Mm -hmm. plus years that are mutual friends of all of ours. And I have no idea what they're talking about half the time. I don't know the law like Mm -hmm. they do, obviously. But I would trust them to tell me what to do because I know that they love me and they're looking out for me. But if I were just a scared, heartbroken woman who had just lost her child Mm. and was charged with murdering my child and facing the electric chair, plus being treated with antipsychotics, which all just sounds heartbreaking and terrifying. And some attorney was talking to me in attorney talk and trying to make me, I'm not saying he tried to make her, but offering up that this is your best course of action. And you trust him. She doesn't have anyone else. And you have no one to Mm kind of bounce this off of. You have no support system, no Mm -hmm. one to talk to, no family. That's sad. It's realizing that the system failed you and you are in jail forever for something that you claim you didn't do has got to be the fucking worst. I mean, for real. Yeah. I mean, she was convicted of a crime that happened while she wasn't even there. Let that sink in. She wasn't even fucking there. She was with that other woman. And she had stopped. You got to watch this documentary, y'all listening. There's a lot that I left out because it would have been a million years long and I would have had an anxiety attack because I got real mad watching it. So just repeating it makes my neck get red. But she stopped at a gas station, got a drink and a pack of cigarettes before. So there's so many people that saw her. They could have checked. It's like they willfully did not. And they're saying, and that comes out too in this documentary, you know, it's the the girls, it's three girls from Georgetown who are working on this and talk to Tina and talk to all these other people. And they're talking to the prosecutor at one point and, you know, he's saying this and saying that and, you know, you guys are going to believe whatever you want to believe, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, it's your job to put in a time frame and a timeline. It was your job to figure all of this out. She's been in prison for over 30 years. Jeez. And I'm not saying she's guilty. I'm not saying she's not. I'm just saying she wasn't fucking there. They considered her guilty from the beginning. No she never had what. a chance. Yeah. She never had a chance. Never had a chance. Anyways, <sighs> go to Hulu, watch it. It's called Angels and Demons. I will. That's it's just, very. <sighs> it's like your story from last week. I'm like, what's going on with these attorneys? Girl. Just what? I'm telling you. Crazy. Like, oh, my gosh. Speaking of crazy, I watched that show you told me to watch. Which one? The telemarketers? No one will help you. Oh, what'd you think? Jump scare. Oh my God. Even Samuel's. Jump like, scare. <laughs> a lot of jump scares. It's good. It's like it, you're on edge the whole time. I would watch it again. That, uh, not giving much away, but the refrigerator scene. <laughs> I was like, no. okay, my, my anxiety. Whole, no, level. I was going to say, my shoulders were killing me. I was so tense. It's because you're always, something's always about to happen. And I watched it in the middle of the day, like one o'clock in the afternoon. I was still uh, we jumping. We it when it was super dark. No. And yeah, he was even Not jumping. I'm like, oh my gosh, is this scaring you? That's one of those movies that I have thought about often when I'm in bed all by myself uh, and it's quiet and dark. I'm like, if one so of these motherfuckers, <laughs> if my dog barks, I'm like, heart attack city aliens scare me and they didn't use to scare me now they do <sighs> when i saw signs back in 05 i think it was 05 that scene where it's in uh-uh. the alleyway that Mm-mm. wrecked me i've never been the same since Mm-mm. this gave Mm-mm. me the same vibes where i'm like took my breath away war of the worlds gave me those oh, vibes too so freaking Mm-mm. and i did watch that vivarium that you told me not to watch and you didn't like it either slowest burn ever <laughs> would i recommend it no it I I don't know. It's a weird fucking movie, y'all. I don't know who comes up with this shit. I I don't have any idea. And when he pulls up the sidewalk, I'm like, what? What? 
I like slow burns usually, but no. there was nothing in it for me. And that kid, so annoying. And then you're just confused the whole time. I, like, yeah. I got I'm still no confused. satisfaction. All my papers. I'm still confused. Like, I have no, no idea what's going on. No satisfaction. That kid was so annoying with his voice. I almost wanted to mute it. Uh, didn't like it. But some people might. I don't know. I doubt it. But go <laughs> knock your socks it. off, y'all. What else is going on? Well, we have new patrons. Awesome. And I need to add all their pins to the map. Since I'm so large and in charge, I don't come upstairs <laughs> to the studio as often. So I need to do it when I'm editing tomorrow or something. But we have dun dun dun, dun Keely P. Don't know where she's from yet. Doesn't matter. Awesome. Doesn't matter. But if you want stickers, email us and we'll email us your address and we'll send them your way. But thank you, Keely. I love your name. That's You're having a boy. Yeah. Can't name him Keely. <laughs> you could. Who's to say? <laughs> that is true. And then this is super exciting. We have Jamia P from Sweden. What? And I hope I'm Is she your, your family? Name. No, she's not my family. <laughs> it's either Jamia or Jamia. J-A-M-I-Y-A-H. What would you say? I'm not even going to try because I mispronounce everything. And if I'm not saying it correctly, please DM me and set me straight. But... Very exciting. Our first Swedish patron. Very cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Thanks. Give us a suggestion for a case to cover there and maybe we'll do it on a, I don't know, patron or wacky. Yeah. We also have Rachel G from Mississippi. Thank you, Rachel. We, yeah. Oh my gosh. We have one other Mississippian, so we needed more Mississippi love. Thank That's you. great. And just like a couple of hours ago, we got Kelly B., from Tennessee. Awesome. Thank you, Kelly. That's really exciting. Thanks, guys. We appreciate that. We do. Thank you very much. And if you've been a patron for a minute and haven't gotten any stickers in the mail yet, we may not have your mailing address or it could be just my pregnancy brain. DM her again. Regardless, email us at unitedstatesofmurder@gmail.com or DM us or whatever and say, give me my stickers. This is my address and I'll send them to you. <laughs> Have we decided on a Patreon um, for <sighs> for November? I don't think so. We have so. to record that next week. I know. I don't know. I thought we were going to do Thanksgiving. Well, we can, but it, we don't know yet for sure if it is scary. Oh, God. It's going to be a surprise for us, yeah, too, Yeah, it's going to be a surprise. It will. And then um, next week we're in Vermont. Are we? I know. Oh, wow. We don't have any Vermont patrons. Well, we're skipping Vermont. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, Vermont. We're moving on. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, but yeah, I got nothing for Vermont. I don't either. I'm uh, sure we'll find something that's. Yeah. I always try to find a, a demony something. Well, your case today, man, that was good. I thought it was going to be all paranor <sighs> paranormal. Well, so did I. And, and then the more case case, but I, it was both. That's cool. I know. Look at that. I like I like that one. That was, it was a mashup. Terrible story. What is the difference between a poltergeist and a ghost minus the like electricity stuff? Like is it an entity? Is it one thing? Why you ask me shit that I should know? I, Hang on. I've what? always wondered that. I've I mean, I've seen the poltergeist, the I've seen the poltergeist too. I don't know what is a poltergeist. Poltergeists are not spirits of the dead. Hmm. They are beings formed from a collective source of human energy. So a living human energy. Yeah. That's, Which, why? Even that I don't understand. So That's then like, why is the movie Poltergeist? I thought it was because the house was built on an Indian burial ground. Yeah. Maybe they didn't, they didn't have Googled it. <laughs> God, now I'm gonna I'm gonna have to look. I this is what seen, we're gonna cover on our Patreon. Just kidding. Yeah, I haven't seen the OG Poltergeist in decades, probably. Oh, it's so good. I'm gonna watch is. that tonight. That little girl, such a good actress. We've got a busy uh, few weeks coming up. We do. Have you? Uh, you're going home for Thanksgiving. <sighs> we're gonna try. I say that because I'll be like at 37 weeks pregnant. You know, you'll be fine. If I start getting contractions, we're driving back to Little Rock immediately. You will be paranoid the whole time. I will you're have up there. this baby at UAMS if I have to hold my legs crossed. I and bet just you won't. <laughs> yeah, I bet you won't hold them crossed. Squeeze, you can't squeeze. cross them now. <laughs> Fair enough. I had my baby shower over the weekend and it was so freaking cute. Ashley and our friend 
Fancy. You got a bunch of super Oh my cute gosh. The presents. cutest things. So cute. I was going, I'm like, oh, I just washed and, you know, cleaned and sorted them yesterday. I'm like, I'm just going to go ahead and wash all these because my friends have to see them and How the stuff they buy. There you get a so lot of cute, cute things. It was really cute. It was, the cake was adorable. It was really good too. Oh, I finished the leftovers. <laughs> I really did. Shout out Kroger. Yeah, it was a really good cake. I was surprised it was mm-hmm. from Kroger and mm-hmm. it was just overall the decorations really cute. Loved a space theme. It was fun. We had we enjoyed throwing it. It for was you. a lot of fun. It was. I'm yeah. still thinking about those chicken salad sandwiches. Those were so that was good. Not the best. Those were really I ate good. Two completely. I ate two. <laughs> two. And I'm, I'm just one person. <laughs> I'm like, go grab me another oh, one of those sandwiches. Lord. The games were fun. Yeah, it was. It was a good time. Yeah. I'm glad that um, that was your last shower, right? So are you all set? Or you have another one? I have, well, Samuel's work colleague is throwing one at the hospital on December 5th for l- lunchtime. So it's like all hospital doctor people, social oh, workers, boy. and, you know, nurses or whatever. So I don't really know all those people. Oh, gosh. It'll be fun. And what is your official due date? December 14th. <sighs> I don't feel like you're going to make it. Everyone says that. And I'm like, he's not even six pounds yet. But I don't know. I wonder how accurate that is, though. Because I had Max. I don't remember them ever telling me how much he weighed. And whenever I had him, I had him at 37 weeks and one day, which is technically a preemie for a boy. Because girls develop faster. Okay. So technically, he was preemie. And... He was almost eight pounds. Wow. Like gestational yeah. age. Gestational, I'm doing quotes. Yeah. He was classified as preemie, but not not length and weight. He was a big boy. Yeah, it's confusing because they give me his percentile in body, uh-huh. head, all the uh-huh. different things. So, And you're like, I don't know. what. The, how can you tell? They're all wadded up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just know my appointments from now on are just going to be a bunch of poking and prodding. Mm. Um, so I have a lot to look forward to. Well, it's just that much closer oh, to him God, being here and all of this being over and you'll get. I'm officially just like done. Everything's uncomfortable. <laughs> Getting out of bed is hard. Walking upstairs, just breathing is hard. Everything is just. It'll all be worth I'm it. Like, I hate that I'm complaining so much, but it's hard. It, well, I didn't know pregnancy was so hard. No one does. I would have still done it, but still, I'm like, man. No one does. If Samuel only knew, <laughs> I think I'm just annoyed that he he doesn't seem to give me enough sympathy. <laughs> they never do. Sorry. I we're, can't. My face is red. We're spiraling now. We're Goodbye, spiraling. Goodbye, Vermont, next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>